0: I was the daughter of, of a Cuban immigrant and a Mexican immigrant, who had these really different paths to immigration in this country, were treated really differently by U.S. systems, and I never really read something that spoke to that kind of complexity, to some of those like tensions that exist within Latinx communities. You know, I was sort of like thinking of that really famous Toni Morrison quote, like, if you want to read something that hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. and I wanted to write a book that really wrote against the idea of like a monolithic Latinx identity.
1: This week on the podcast, I talked to the writer, poet, and immigration justice organizer, Gabriela Garcia. Her debut novel, Of Women and Salt, opens in 1866 when Cuba was on the Cusper Revolution. It's about intergenerational family dramas and mother-daughter relationships. We talk about the best intentions that mothers can have but can still go awry, the machismo we associate with Cuban revolutionaries, and Gabriela's favourite cigars. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgewood, and this is Lit Up. quoted as saying that your obsessions are cuba america issues around detention deportation addiction privilege and i'm gathering too that from reading this incredible book that one of your uh, missions is to amplify the voices of latinx women would that be a, a correct assessment of your obsessions
0: yeah. I mean, I think I started writing the book while I was working as, a, as an organizer around deportation defense work and, you know, working with women in detention. So it was certainly a lot of the stuff that was on my mind as I was writing it. I think I was, you know, working in solidarity with, with a lot of these women and families who were facing deportation or in these family detention centers.
1: When was the first time
0: you went to a detention center? I think it was around that time, like 2013, 2014, these, these detention centers that I was visiting in particular are what is known as family detention centers. So they were mostly women and their children. And it's, you know, I think there there are a lot of parallels with other carceral systems. You know, it's like a very structured en- environment that is reminding you it at every turn that people are are sort of being kept, kept there against their will. You know, in particular, the family detention centers can be really strange in that, you know, like I'm thinking of one in particular where different sections of this detention center are named after like animals and colors. So there's like the green frog section and the yellow bird section. And there are all these ways they're trying to make this like a a childlike environment for these children but but there's no sort of denying all the ways that these are just <laughs> these are just prisons you know um so it's it's really kind of strange and and awful
1: what was the type of work you were doing there
0: i was working with various different organizations doing Deportation defense work. This was around the Obama administration when deportations were really ramping up. And we were basically working with some of these families, some of these women on their deportation cases.
1: Well, there are two characters in your book that relate directly to what you're talking about asylum seekers and also a mother and daughter that end up in a detention center, like one of the ones you're describing. Can you tell us about Gloria and Anna and why uh, you chose them as characters?
0: I mean, the book basically sort of, it is sort of about these two families whose, whose lives collide. And one of them is a Cuban family through various different generations. And the other is Gloria and Anna, who are from El Salvador and end up also in Mexico and part of the novel they're sort of escaping this this complicated violence that they're they're fleeing basically and a lot of it is sort of generated by like US policies in Central America and then they're just like subjected to to another kind of violence in the US when when they end up in a family detention center and then they're basically deported to Mexico, even though they're from El Salvador. And that was sort of based on actually some of the cases that I worked in where stuff like that happened. And they sort of end up staying in Mexico and trying to build a, a kind of life there before Anna ends, ends up, you know, attempting to come back to the, to the U.S. And that's one thread of the novel. But again, the novel involves these two families and their lives sort of collide. And both... Both sides of the family immigrated to the U.S., but in just these really different ways that have a lot to do with race and class and privilege. So
1: you're the daughter of immigrants from Mexico and Cuba. Can you tell us which side of your family is from where?
0: My father immigrated from Mexico and my mother came from Cuba.
1: Can you talk a bit about the the differences in race and class within the Cuban community, particularly in Miami, and how it's so varied and complicated?
0: There were certain waves in which like a large number of Cubans were coming into the U.S., and in particular, that very early wave right after the the Cuban Revolution in 1959. These were people basically were fleeing the the communists government that had that had taken over in Cuba and were mostly the people who had who had something to lose. So a lot of wealthy families, overwhelmingly white, they also, you know, they were coming into the US in in a way that was very welcoming to them. They were sort of basically, there were all these laws in place which existed until, you know, just recently that basically just put any any Cuban who who touched ground in the U S on a path to citizenship, and there were all these other bills that sort of helped Cubans out financially, and so there was just this enclave that basically sprouted in in Miami that was really supportive of other immigrants coming in, and those that early Cuban community just found a lot of success in the U S, and and it had you know everything to do with race and class and sort of the the systems in place to support immigrants coming from Cuba. Some of that has shifted with more more recent Cubans that law in particular that sort of guaranteed that all Cubans would be you know on a path to citizenship and wouldn't face undocumented status in the U.S ever like that was that ended under Obama. I believe it was Obama's second term. So you know now we're starting to see, Cuban immigrants coming in to the U.S. who are in detention centers and stuff like that. But before that, that was something that just didn't even exist for Cubans.
1: Your book opens in 1866. And I wondered why you chose to start your book then and we have to say for our listeners that Maria Isabel, who's the, the matriarch of the Cuban side of the family, works in a cigar factory. And could you just paint a picture of, for us about what it was like to work in these cigar factories? And you do it so beautifully in the book. But there's also quite a, a fascinating part that, that novels played in, in the whole culture of making cigars.
0: Sure. Yeah, actually the spark for that for that chapter was when I was in Cuba and I visited a museum exhibit that featured some of these letters from Victor Hugo to Cuban independence fighters in the 19th century. And so the chapter like incorporates some of that original content, some of those letters and newspaper articles um, that are real from that time. And I was really fascinated by that interplay between literature and workers and independence fighters during that time. And the other thing that was really fascinating to me, my my family was always very much into cigars, but I didn't know much of the history about these lectures, who are people who basically read to tobacco workers as they're rolling cigars. And that's a practice that continues. To this day, but some of the um, most famous cigars in Cuba, like Monte Cristos and Romeo y Julieta's, which are cigars that you know my my father used to smoke, their names were actually from these books that that cigar factory workers were were read while while they were rolling cigars all those years ago. So I was super super fascinated by that you know, interplay between tobacco workers and literature and some of that correspondence that existed. And with Maria Isabel in particular, you know, I I was just, I was both fascinated by, by the role that literature played, by these books that were championed by tobacco workers. And also, you know, it was the fact that they were overwhelmingly written by European white men, you know, and I wondered what, what it would have been like to be somebody like Maria Isabel working in the, in the cigar factory and hearing all of these stories, but through this sort of gaze, through this filter. And you know, so much of the novel is about stories, you know, the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, the stories that are passed on. And so I, that felt like sort of a window into exploring the nature of stories and who tells them and how they're passed on and whether, you know, reclaiming some of those words is even possible. And so I think that's why that's one of the early opening chapters, because I felt like it really sort of gave, gave an, an entrance into those questions around stories.
1: Oh, it's such a beautiful way to enter the story. And of course she earns half what the men make and is probably the best cigar roller in the place. Just, ah, it was frustrating, you know, to think of all those hundred years ago, you know, many women are still in that same position the political situation in Cuba is the driver for everything that happens in your entire novel from that point.
0: Yeah. So that chapter is set during the first attempt at independence from Spain, which ended up failing. And it wasn't until there was actual independence from Spain and even further down when enslaved people were emancipated in Cuba. So it's set during this tumultuous time when also some of those seeds of revolution are are sort of brewing. And so I was interested in what was happening politically in the sort of tensions and dynamics in Cuban society at that time, but also what what it meant to be, you know, Maria Isabel, like a mixed-race woman, sort of having to survive on her own terms during that time. So I was really interested in sort of the individual within that larger political structure. And yeah, I think throughout the novel, that's sort of constantly an interplay, you know, in these individual women and their survival within some of this larger political context.
1: And it's definitely a misogynist context, isn't it? And I think just connecting that to the the symbolism of the cigar, like of wealth and power and of that machismo, how do those two things connect for you?
0: That's interesting that you talk about the cigars because there's so many. <laughs> I have tons. I always I always have a bunch that I bring back from Cuba. Goiba is like the best known and really is great. I think I'm I'm interested in the complexities, right? Like you can have this husband and wife who sort of align politically and this husband who's fighting for these ideals at the same time that he is deeply invested in patriarchy and really violent towards his own family I think is has been true for a lot of social movements you you can align politically in so many ways or be fighting for equity in so many ways and also be perpetuating harm in other ways I don't think it's necessarily unique to the Cuban revolution or you know that movement in particular
1: Within your family, what were the stories that were told to you about Cuba growing up?
0: I've grown up going to Cuba frequently most of my life, and it's absolutely a country that has changed and shifted. The idea that Cuba's ever been frozen in time is so erroneous, you know? And even if, you know, there are 1950s cars on the road or whatever, like, The influence of the U.S. on Cuba has always been, you know, really strong. There's always been tourism in Cuba, even if it wasn't always centered around U.S. tourists, but there's always been, like, European tourists and Canadian tourists, and that sort of interaction has always existed and influenced Cuban society and cultures. In terms of romanticizing or sort of painting portraits of places, like, I think people often – expect Cuba to be one thing or believe that like all Cubans feel one way about the the political dynamics on, on the island. And I think Cuba's just as complicated and complex as any other country in the world. So I think sometimes, you know, on on the left and the right, like Cuban sort of exist in this very mythologized imaginary that is that is far more complex. Well, every
1: character in your book is incredibly complex. There are male characters, but none of them are given a voice like your female characters.
0: Yeah, I knew really early on that I wanted all of the the voices in the novel to be that of women, which is in part like where that title is coming from. So we hear from a lot of different people, a lot of different voices, but they all belong to women.
1: A huge theme of the book is the trauma that daughters in particularly inherit from their mothers and how family secrets can really destroy relationships which otherwise are trying to to be good and healthy. Could you tell us about why that was so important? Any woman can read your book and just relate to the mother-daughter relationships in some way or another. And yeah, one of these, the themes, do correct me if I'm wrong, is that when there are secrets between generations, they can um, fester so much in families. Was that what you were trying to explore?
0: Yeah, I think I've always been... Really interested in and fascinated by relationships between women in particular. And, you know, one of the most intense and interesting to me is the mother daughter dynamic, in part because it's just so, you know, you can never fully know anyone really, but including your mother, who is this, you know, whole individual person aside from just being your mother. There's this whole like multitude and universe within everyone. A lot of the book is about stories, the ones that get passed on, as well as the ones that don't, but in many ways, absolutely affect the trajectory of people's lives, even when they don't know these stories, which I think is true of personal and larger historical forces. I was really interested in exploring that. And you're right, like a lot of the conflict and consequences in the book come from these stories that can't be spoken or that are unknown between these mother-daughter characters.
1: Well, and the shame, the sadness, I guess, I found when reading it is that these mothers trying to protect their daughters, and that's why they're not sharing the stories of their lives. And I mean, I think, would that be accurate? I feel like that's the great sadness here.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. Like, you know, there's this sort of feeling that not knowing protects us. And I think this can be true, again, of like things in in history that we don't want to look at, you know, and, and it's easier to remain sort of feeling innocent or you know thinking that just turning away from that is a protective measure but that in reality just continues to perpetuate harm and I think that we see that also in these individual relationships that actually not talking about these things or just trying to maintain that innocence ends up having you know tragic consequences
1: Were there people in your family who never wanted to return and then others who talked about home all the time?
0: Uh, Yeah, that's interesting because the dynamic that exists in the the book, which is true of a lot of Cuban-American families who I grew up around in Miami, and I didn't actually grow up with that tension in my family because... You know, my mother regularly traveled back to Cuba all throughout her life, and so did my grandmother. And that kind of tension never existed in my family, which was different from some of my, my friends. People from more recent waves of immigration who tend to travel back to Cuba more than some of those older waves who sort of swore they would never have anything to do with Cuba um, under its current political system.
1: So you're known as primarily a poet, but a writer of many beautiful articles, and now this incredible debut novel. When did you first start writing?
0: I have been writing as long as I can remember. Even before I wrote, I used to like dictate stories to my mother, and she would write them down before I even knew how to write. I can't think of any time in my life when I wasn't a writer but I think it took me a long time to sort of pursue my fiction or my poetry in a in a serious manner professionally. I have never taken a, a writing workshop before my MFA program. I sort of worked a lot of jobs in between that time. You know, I started off in the music industry. I worked in media. I worked as an organizer for many years. And I was always writing adjacent to my jobs, you know, but just not creative writing or, you know, fiction, I was sort of doing that on the side. And I think I just thought, like, I want to apply to these programs that I really would love to to go to. And if I get accepted into one of them, like, I'll sort of, you know, leave my job and decide to dedicate th- myself to this. And if not, then, you know, it's fine. <laughs> like, I'll just keep doing this on the side. And then I got really lucky and got into you know, program that I was really excited about and, you know, decided to to really put all of myself into this one passion.
1: Does your mother still have any of those stories you wrote before you could even write?
0: She does. Yeah. As a kid, like I think I wrote my first quote unquote novel when I was like seven or eight. And it was like this story about a girl who lives under the sea and has like this sort of bubble head. It was illustrated. <laughs> yeah, I have I have a lot of like those, you know, sort of really early creative projects that are fun to look at.
1: And with this book, when did those characters start to come to you? And was it when you were working within these detention centers or who was the first character that came to you and why did you feel that you had to write this book now? And why did it have to be fiction?
0: I wrote some snippets during that time when I was working as an organizer, but it really started to take shape as a novel. It was my MFA thesis, basically. There wasn't really one character early on that I sort of automatically gravitated toward. I think it started to sort of coalesce around Jeanette. As the central character, and I think in part maybe that's because that was the easiest character for me to access. You know, she's the daughter of Cuban immigrants, she lives in Miami, you know, even though we're really different in a lot of ways, there were some sort of entry points that made that easier for me to write.
1: What were some of the books that you read growing up that really influenced you? And what type of voices do you wish you had? had?
0: Yeah, so I think my absolute first love was The Babysitter's Club. Yes. I was obsessed as a kid, like just like completely obsessed, devoured those books. And it's interesting, like I've never sort of thought about how my early reading life influenced my later life. But thinking back on it, like these were books that were all written in the perspective of these young girls, you know. And now I I mainly write from the perspective of women but I think that was really interesting to me and even though I don't think any of those characters reflected my reality in, in any way I was so taken by that sort of centering of these of these sort of just really of these girls who were just so in control of of their lives you know later on as like my my reading evolved as I got older yeah, I think for a long time like I I don't think that I felt like there was anything that I'd read that really like directly spoke to my experience and in part I think that's what what drove me to write this book. You know, I was really interested in the in the complexities of you know, I I was the daughter of of a Cuban immigrant and a Mexican immigrant who in many ways had these really different paths to immigration in this country were treated really differently by, you know, U.S. systems. And I never really read something that spoke to, like, that kind of complexity, to some of those, like, tensions that exist within Latinx communities. And so, you know, I was sort of, like, thinking of that really famous Toni Morrison quote, like, if you want to read something that hasn't been written yet, then Mm -hmm. you must write it. And so... I wanted to write a book that that sort of really wrote against the idea of like a monolithic Latinx identity.
1: How were your mom and dad's journeys really different that you just mentioned?
0: Yeah, so the Cuban side of my family had all of these privileges coming to this country, this really easy path toward immigrating and becoming citizens and, you know, receiving like early financial help and and structures to sort of start a life here. And coming from Mexico, none of that existed. You know, my father didn't become a citizen until, you know, I think I was in my 20s. And... That
1: must have been stressful for you and the family, was it? Growing up thinking that something might happen to him.
0: Yeah, and also I think I was just so a- aware of the the differences even growing up within growing up in Miami where, you know, particularly like white Latinx immigrants held a lot of power and where, you know, my father in many ways just <laughs> often struggled. And, you know, there were, there were just all of these sort of like tensions and class and racial structures within Miami. And I think I just, in particular, coming from a, a sort of multi-ethnic family, like I, I felt really aware of that growing up, you know, of those sort of tensions and spaces. And that became a lot of my, you know, interest in In writing this book thank you for such a beautiful answer
1: your book does capture the nuances and complexities of these of families just like you said it's not about immigrant families it's just about family i'm wondering from your perspective what do you want people to know about your book coming into it and what do you hope they come away with
0: Yeah, you know, I think I I think every reader sort of brings their own life experience often into into the reading of any book. I know I certainly do. So it's hard for me to sort of imagine like what I want people's entry points to be. And I think people have it's interesting, like I think people have connected to so many different things in the book. Some people have, have been really drawn to some of those like community dynamics that I've talked to. Some people have been really interested in, you know, the portrayals of substance use disorders within a family. Some people have been really drawn into the sort of exploration of the immigration landscape under the Obama administration. You know, people have sort of connected to all of these different threads, which which I love because I think the book is hard to characterize. I think it's just so... It, it's so many of these things happening at the same time. And, you know, I think I, I try to write into questions that I myself have or, you know, like I said, obsessions or things that I'm thinking about. So I, I hope that people come away with, with questions <laughs> or, you know, even sometimes feeling uncomfortable like some people have said to me because I think I, I go into some difficult questions so I guess that's, that's my hope too, that, you know, it'll spark conversation. It'll, it'll spark questions.
1: My last question is, what lights
0: you up? That's such a great question. Um, I think, you know, I think community lights me up, you know, I think connection to other human beings lights me up. I think language and literature certainly is like one of my huge loves. Music, my cat, you know. I think in many ways during the pandemic, like my life has sort of simplified around around some of these things. And I'm learning to just like super appreciate like going roller skating around my block or being really excited about my hummingbird feeder, you know, sort of turning to some of these simple pleasures in my life that excite me. But I would say above all, like, my community, my chosen family. Thank you so much. I think
1: roller skates, hummingbirds, (laughs) community, I I think you just gave us all many examples of how we can light up our own lives (laughs) because you you must be lit up a lot because that just sounded beautiful and brilliant and thank you so much for sharing uh so much of yourself and about your beautiful book
0: thank you so much
1: thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Gabriela garcia her book of Women and Salt is available now and can be purchased via the link on our website, lituppodcast.com. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Radovsky. Please make sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Until next time, bye everyone.